In the latest episode of our True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks speaks with serial entrepreneur, philanthropist, author and maverick Mike Tobin. Mike is also the non-executive chairman of this year's winner of the Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Award, Ultraleap. In addition to learning about Ultraleap's innovations and its application in a post-pandemic world, we hear Mike's fascinating story as an entrepreneur and the advice he has for other entrepreneurs who are at the start of their journey. Mike, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to speak with you and it's great for our listeners to hear a little bit about your story and, of course, what you are currently up to. But before we get to that, Mike, it'd be great also to hear a little bit about the story with Ultraleap. And for those listening who don't know, Ultraleap were recent winners for the Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Award, just picking up that award a couple of weeks ago. Be useful, Mike to get your steer on why you feel the firm won this year's award. Well, yes, hello, and thank you for having me on. So very delighted to have won the award with Ultraleap, and I'm chairman there. And of course, I did nothing to deserve those accolades. It was the team that did all the hard work on that. And Ultraleap started just a few years ago out of Bristol University, and it was the sort of the concept of a chap called Tom Carter, who was doing his dissertation in sort of ultrasonic signals. And he's developed a system which can create the sensation of touch in midair, which sounds kind of very matrix and futuristic, and it actually is, because if you imagine when you're reversing your car and you get the sensors going beep, 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 like that, that's actually a very high-pitched sound, an ultrasonic signal going out from a speaker in your bumper and bouncing back and the distance being measured in terms of time and therefore distance. And actually, he worked out an algorithm that said if you send a 100 of these signals all at different times so that they all arrive at exactly the same point at the same time, you can create an impact in midair. So we have a tracking device that tracks your hand and we bombard a single point, a single spot in midair, which is where your finger is, with sound. And it actually creates the sensation of something physical being there, which I think is brilliant. <laughs> but um, it is very much sort of the concept of the matrix. <laughs> yeah. And Mike, it's almost perfect timing with the year we've had already and the pandemic that I guess interest in this type of technology in business is really in vogue, I would imagine. Is that what you've seen as well? Well, it is. We were very focused on various sort of applications and the applications are really endless for this sort of thing. And you know, ranging from where you're in a car and every time you take your eyes off the road to look for a button, the risk is increased. So if you just put your hand out in midair and the button comes to you, you'd never need to take your eye off the road. But of course, in this COVID time, what we found was that there were a lot of applications appearing where people just didn't want to physically touch something, be that an elevator button or in a sort of a fast food restaurant where you have the ordering screens at the entrance. Whereas before you'd have to touch the screen, now you can actually press the screen, but without physically touching the screen, maybe six inches away. And so COVID has driven significant innovation in a way that we probably couldn't have anticipated in the kind of volumes and demand that we've seen. So from a startup, and I was effectively employee number three back three years ago, but now we're doing our pre-IPO round fundraising at a north of 300 million valuation. So it's a very significant growth trajectory and it's just been fueled by current situations. But, you know, I mean, when it comes to sort of looking at these opportunities, you know, I could never have envisaged when well, no one I think could three years ago what this year was going to be like. But I really looked for the people side of things. And so when I get involved in businesses, I try to be involved with people that have the right attitude, if that makes sense. 
if I can get people that have essentially a positive approach to challenge, creativity, that sort of thing, that's far more valuable to me than actually an interesting product on day one, because as we can see, the world changes very quickly, but our ability to be creative should endure. And how did you get involved with Ultraleap, Mike? Was it your sort of strategic thinking or was it a particular area of the tech side? The fabulous CEO there, a guy called Steve Cliff, just found me on LinkedIn and said, listen, we don't know each other, but I've got this business that we need to start, we need to create, and I need help in terms of mentorship, structure, that sort of thing. So I said, sure. And I came in as a non-salaried individual. And here we are three years later with a fantastic business. But, you know, it's funny how these things evolve. It's the only role I've ever got from LinkedIn. <laughs> but um, that's the one. <laughs> and Mike, obviously, Ultraleap is just one of the most recent successes that you've been involved with. And I know you've got many behind you, and I'm sure well ahead of you as well. It'd be really interesting to hear about just your broader story and the challenges and some of the successes that you've had along the way. I know you're involved in a number of different companies at the minute, from data centers to broadband providers and so on. It'd be really nice for us to hear a little bit more about the wider story. I guess I've been very, very lucky, especially on a business front and obviously lucky in life generally with a wonderful family, etc. But I was born in the East End of London. My dad was in a gang. He was very violent. I left school at 16, but before I left school, my mother took me out to Africa at the age of seven to escape my violent father. But little did we know that we were going from the frying pan into the fire because we ended up in what was then called Rhodesia in the middle of a civil war. So I was petrol bombed four times, I think shot at about 13 times, one got me in the leg. And then at around the age of 12, we managed to get back to the UK. But because they took everything from us at the airport in Africa, they stripped us of our belongings, our money, our jewellery, our luggage, everything. So we ended up effectively refugees coming back into our own country. And we lived in a squad in Stockwell for two years, basically breaking into condemned houses, waiting for demolition and finding old upright pianos, tuning them up and rolling them down the old Kent Road to sell in East Street Market for £20 each. And that's basically the story up till I left school at 16. And, you know, you can imagine I didn't really plan any of that. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like, you know, what could you sort of bottle and sell? I didn't really plan any of that. But then I did an apprenticeship in electronics engineering and then managed to get myself some roles in the technical side of things and then embarked on a 10, 11 year journey or a little bit longer, actually 14 year journey living in France, Copenhagen, Frankfurt. And then back in 2002, when the dot-com bubble had burst, I moved back to the UK thinking, well, it's better to hunker down back in sort of hometown. And I kind of inherited this business called Redbus, which was about a six million pound market cap business that was listed, but was a basket case. It was virtually bankrupt. It was worth, I'd say, £6 million, but that was only because it had £6 million in the bank, but it was burning £2.4 million a month, so you could count your paydays on one hand. But through a lot of luck, managed to take that private, consolidate the data centre industry, which that was one of the operators, and relist it in 2007 for about £250 million. And then we sold it in 2015 for £2.6 So that was a very interesting and exciting journey over a sort of just over a decade which I've written a book about. My third book came out a few months ago called Lifting the Floor, which is all about that journey. And then 
I started investing in you know various different opportunities. So some of the ventures I've had in the data center space since then are Terraco in South Africa, which we acquired with Pamira for 100 million euros, and we sold that north of a billion four years later. We acquired a business in Spain with Carlisle called Iconic, which we made about 17 times money in 25 months on, which is fantastic. And now I'm invested in data center assets in China, in Russia, in Nigeria. And also, as you mentioned, I've got a couple of listed companies that I chair in the UK. One is Audioboom, the largest podcasting platform in Europe. And the other is Big Blue Broadband, which provides high-speed broadband via satellite to remote parts of the world. And so, you know, quite varied, but all in tech, really. Except one, I've just made quite an interesting investment into a new restaurant business, which people would think, my God, what's that? But it's brand new and it opens in April, which I will no doubt have more publicity around nearer the time. But it's a good time to kind of invest in things that aren't flavor of the month, because, you know, that's where you get value, right? Exactly that. And Mike, you've just touched on an industry that has really found it incredibly tough this year in terms of restaurants and hospitality in particular. I know businesses that I guess have adapted the most, certainly over the last year, have probably found the most success, I guess, in the current environment. And I know you've spoken a lot before about creating a vision rather than a strategy when it comes to looking at business. Just just talk us through that a little bit in terms of your thinking behind that and being able to, I guess, for want of a better phrase, and sort of roll with the punches a little bit as things come in your way and obstacles come in your way. When you're speaking to the businesses that you're heavily involved with, how do you apply that sort of logic to what they are doing? So I think there's a kind of a series of things there, and I talk a lot about it in my first book, Forget Strategy, Get Results, because it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, right? It's like, you know, I'd rather have a vision than a strategy. And the difference for me is a strategy is too prescriptive, especially in today's world, and in particular in technology, where things change so fast, the rate of change is getting faster. I remember 20 years ago, we used to write these five-year business plans. And of course, you know, you write a business plan today, and it's outdated in three months. And of course, if you take this year as an example, you know, this wasn't in anyone's business plan, right? So how do you deal with it? If you've given someone or you've given your management team a strategy, and this happens, then they're sitting there going, oh, you know. (laughs) And one of my favorite quotes is Jean-Paul Sartre, who says, in football, everything is complicated by the presence of the opposite team, right? You know, it's like you can draw it all out on a whiteboard and, you know, you can plan this and practice that. But unless you tell the other side what you're going to do, they're not going to know. Therefore, they're going to do something to completely upset your plans. And that's what you've got to be prepared for. And whenever I've built businesses, I've always, first of all, started with this. Build the best possible team around you that you can possibly find and afford, right? So get the best people, right? And I recruit on attitude, right? I want the best people in terms of attitude in each of the fields. So whether that's finance or marketing or sales or whatever. And then I impart the vision. So I say, what do you want to be famous for, right? What do you want to be known for in 10 years time, in five years time, whatever, and get that vision into their minds. And then I should have the most easy life because they will do everything in their power to deliver this wonderful vision, right? And why would I, if I've got the best person in marketing that I could possibly find, why should I assume that I should be so clever as to tell them what to do anyway? They will know exactly what to do in their field in order to deliver their part of that journey to the vision. And I articulate it like if you're a sailor and you live in Dover and tomorrow you've just said, you know what, it's Friday nights, tomorrow's Saturday, I'm going to sail to Calais and I want Moulfrit in Calais 
for lunch tomorrow, right? So you get up on Saturday morning, get to your boat, and you realize the wind is blowing 100% opposite to where you want it to be. It's blowing directly against you. Well, a good sailor won't just go, oh, well, that's it then. My plans are finished. He'll say, well, you know what? I might have to tack a little bit more. My plans are changed, but my vision is the same. I'm still going to have more frit in Calais, but I'll have to tack a few more times to exploit the way that the wind has changed. So we can never dictate which way the wind is blowing, but we certainly have full control over our sails. And it's that difference between a very specific or prescriptive strategy and a very fluid vision that I think is what's more and more valuable, especially in technology businesses today. And it comes back to your point earlier, doesn't it, about almost aptitude over aptitude. So having that real desire and the passion can often trump the aptitude of some. And we've seen it before with people and businesses who have been more successful just because of the sheer ability to tackle the situation in front of me in a much better way. And in terms of the firms that you're working with now and people you're speaking to, what are you saying to some of the entrepreneurs about what they need to be focusing on now, given the environment that we are living in, that we've come through and that we've experienced over the last sort of six to nine months? What's on the agenda for those conversations that you're having? Well, I think everyone is focused on cash preservation, right? I mean, that's the key for young, well, it's key for every business right now, because we finally, today is the first day of the vaccine being deployed, and that's fantastic news for everybody globally. But up until this point, since you know very early this year, we've been sitting there not knowing how long it's going to be before we are even on a road to recovery. So many companies, look at the restaurant industry we mentioned before, right? Devastated, absolutely devastated. But the creativity that one has to have there. So first of all, cash preservation, and then what do we do? So getting control of your cost base, but then saying, how do we keep things afloat? Now, the creativity in the restaurant industry has been fabulous, right? The home kits now from sort of the traditional kind of just eat equivalent of like takeaways to now having Michelin starred meals at home, finish at home type foods and things like that. It's been breathtaking in the way that that's developed. And when you speak to most chefs now, most Michelin star chefs, they'll say, no, I'm keeping this going, regardless of when everything gets back to normal from the restaurant point of view, because this is a business line now that we think has got legs. So they've been able to pivot on a number of angles to find things that have changed their business model forever. And I think the airline industries are another one, which they're really going to find it challenging to get back to their pre-COVID levels for a very, very long time. And I probably used to take three flights a week pre-COVID with the acceptance now of remote business, remote working, Zoom calls. I'll be surprised if I take more than one trip a month going forward. So, you know, that alone is a very strong indicator of an industry that will have to rethink entirely to make it viable going forward in the way that it was before. So I think there's many things that you kind of say, well, as many challenges as there are, conserve cash and very rapidly rethink your business models. You know, rather than giving up, a lot of people have been incredibly successful at that. Yeah. And as you say, Mike, it's great to see just some of those creative minds really feeding its way through to the economy. I've become accustomed now to seeing invites pop up for a virtual dinner, which in March I absolutely would not expect at all and probably had to look up to see what that meant. But it's great to see that sort of creativity being seen across our economy now, which is fantastic. And in terms of that creativity that you mentioned, the UK has been quite a hub for tech entrepreneurs like yourself and others and some of it has been 
centred in some cases around sort of universities, etc. How much work are you doing with some of those areas and what are you seeing in terms of new technologies being created or being looked at? If you look at what's changing the world on a more sort of above technology basis, right? Big data and the Internet of Things combined is really going to change everything and other technologies beneath there will be kind of apparent. But that's the kind of overarching sort of broad brush tech that I think is changing the world. And what we mean by big data and, and Internet of Things is there are hundreds of billions of devices that will be connected to the Internet in the next five to ten years. And they're not just computers and phones. They're going to be sensors around our fridges, sensors around roads, sensors around how we move around cities, sensors around temperature, sensors around farming that regulate irrigation. And all of this is just dramatically going to change the efficiency of the world, right? And it will generate immense amounts of data. And that's what big data is. And if you think about the way, there's going to be two distinct ways that we look at data. And if you think about all of these sensors generating real live, real-time information that we can tune our lives on a nanosecond by nanosecond basis, then you've got this sort of window on a narrow bit of data. That's one way we use it. But then all of that data then drops into a big repository where data analytics gets to work on it and says, okay, over the last five years, what's the likelihood of something happening tomorrow? And so the big data analysis on our post event basis and the live tuning of our lives on a real-time basis are going to be the two ways that we use data enormously in the future. And I think this will be used in insurance purposes, in predictability, in efficiency, even things like where you're building a car and you're punching out a piece of metal for a door panel or something. I don't know, I'm making it up as I go along, but, but the tolerances around the perfection of that door being punched out by the tool that's being used to punch it out, you know, that wears out over time and you can put a sensor on there so you minimize the wastage. And there's so many uses of Internet of Things-based real-time analytics that the world won't look the same even in five years from now. And it feels to me at least, Mike, that we're not necessarily talking about lots of new gadgets or products being brought to the market, but just a continuous evolution of innovation rather than something groundbreaking. Do you see it that sort of way? When you look at sort of groundbreaking stuff, there's very few and far between. Actually, usually we think about a technology like driverless cars, right? So we've been talking about driverless cars now for close to a decade. And what's funny about technology is we always overestimate the speed of uptake of a new technology in a five to 10 year period. And we usually underestimate it in a 15 to 20 year period. So 10 years from now, I fully expect driverless cars to be kind of pretty much the norm everywhere, certainly in certain aspects of our lives, like delivery vehicles or taxis and that sort of thing. But having spoken about a technology for 10 years, you know, is also quite interesting because we don't seem to have any progress. But of course, we've made massive progress in there. And one of the challenges of technology that we underestimate is our own ability to accept technology. So I have a microchip in my hand, right, which I use for my Oyster card usage on the tube. So I replace my Oyster card with this microchip in my right hand. And in my left hand, I have a microchip which is low frequency that I use to replace the car keys on my car. So when I talk to people about this, they say, that's bizarre that you've injected microchips in your hands. Why on earth would you do that? And I said, well, why wouldn't I? Because now I don't carry car keys and an Oyster card. So, you know, we're quite happy to put, you know, titanium hips in people, but we don't want to put a microchip in our hand. 
which will save us immense amounts of hassle. So for me, you know, I think our ability to accept technology is the biggest decelerator of our adoption of technology, not the technology itself. Really interesting. And Mike, just coming back to our listeners, many of whom will be part of our entrepreneur network, when we speak to people like you who have been involved in many sort of exit strategies for different types of firms and indeed sort of integrations of different businesses, what advice do you give to some of these people in terms of exit strategies? You mentioned at the start the fundraise for Ultraleap, for example, that may involve in some exits, I guess, at some stage. But generally, what sort of advice do you give to founders and entrepreneurs who are considering some form of exit? Yeah, I think, first of all, pre-exit, right? As you're raising money and as you're going through the journey of getting bigger and growing up as a business, I think there's really, really important lessons to learn along that way as well. And I've seen so many times fantastic founders that have taken all the risks in the world that have got a great little business and struggle and fight and, you know, get all the hard work done and take all the risks. And then finally they get to a point and they go and do a fundraise when they give a ton of equity away, right? And because they're usually not able to follow their corner at subsequent rounds, the business is growing fast, but actually they're getting diluted at a massive rate. And I would urge founders wherever possible, you know, the logic of raising capital at the moment through debt rather than equity is so obvious because debt is cheap at the moment. Borrowing money is cheap. If you believe in your product, if you believe in your company, right, don't give it away early, right? Wait until you've created more value. Borrow money rather than go into equity negative territory because the dilution gives everyone else your hard work that you've just gone through. So I'm a great proponent of dragging businesses, kicking and screaming with debt. I'd rather see a business with high growth going through heavy debt early on because you unwind that debt leverage because of the speed of the growth, right? So, and it's cheap anyway. But if once you've given away equity, that's it, right? It's never coming back. So I would strongly urge young entrepreneurs especially, and I think one of the issues that we have in Europe as opposed to the US, right, is people worry about, you know, sort of getting it wrong in their businesses, going bankrupt or whatever else. And whilst there's, you know, obviously no one wants to see that, right? But in the UK, people look at companies that have gone bankrupt and go, oh, that's a terrible, I'm never going to invest in him because he's terrible. Well, actually in the US, they go, oh, well, that guy looks like a de-risked investment because he knows what not to do next time, right? And so there's a real attitude. If you can learn from, you know, everyone makes mistakes. And if you can learn as you go, then you become very quickly a better investment risk anyway. So I would say, you know, take stock of where you are vis-a-vis the growth projections. Get people behind you that have gone around the block a few times that have the trust, because what you probably won't have is enough sort of trust equity that you can go to a bank and say, lend me some money on this business early. So what you need is somebody with a reputation to partner you and say, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to raise debt here, you're going to keep as much as you can in terms of equity to a later round and then get in a decent kind of venture capitalist or that sort of person to help you. And then you're giving a fair value for your equity and you know, you're saving more of your kind of upside for yourself. So I think it sounds simple, right? But you'll be amazed at how many times I've seen such hardworking entrepreneurs and people that have taken all the risks in the world and then ended up with very, very little because they've been diluted out of sight. 
Does that come with experience, do you think, Mike? What's the reason behind that, do you think? The thing is, right, a lot of entrepreneurs have one really, really good idea and they love it and they work hard with it. And even if they learn from the fact that they've got it wrong, then they feel like, oh, where am I going to get another great idea like that again? Other entrepreneurs seem like they're serial idea creators, right? They'll come up with something and learn all their mistakes and come up with another idea and learn all their mistakes. So I think it's character-driven, but nevertheless, I would still say if you come up with a brilliant idea first time around, it may be your one big one. So don't give it away. Don't give it away cheaply, that's for sure. And to your points on debt funding and sources of that, we've heard lots about the sheer volume of liquidity that's around the marketplace. And it feels certainly that there are plenty of alternative sources of debt rather than your traditional banks, finance houses or private equity firms, for example, as a place to go. But I guess what you've been talking about is a perfect situation where, you know, you're finding yourself the resource and the liquidity, but equally coupling that with expertise and support for your business, which is equally as powerful as we've discussed earlier. That's right. I mean, having good advice is invaluable. And as you say, you know, money's cheap at the moment. It's very readily available. There's so much equity waiting to be invested. I mean, the problem is it's not all accessible for sort of startups and small businesses. A lot of it is that because of the volumes of capital available, the ticket size is going up as well. So people are saying, you know, I can't afford to invest less than 100 million because I just don't have the capacity to manage it. That sounds terrible for somebody that's looking for like 2 million to start their business, but that's, you know what I mean? That's the way the world is going. But there is a flow through on that. There's a waterfall. And, you know, there is a real opportunity for people to take debt now rather than equity and get on that kind of journey earlier. And it's very, very cheap. But experience is everything. Getting advice, getting people around you that you trust, that's worth a lot, especially in the early stage. Mike, finally, just want to talk to you a little bit about your charitable work. I know you're well known for enormous amounts of work that you do for education and for children around the world. And I was massively impressed with your trek earlier this year to the South Pole. As I look outside today, it's not quite the temperatures of the South Pole, but it seems to be getting that way. Talk to us a little bit about that. And I guess from a business perspective, was there anything in your experience over the years that got you through some of the challenges that you found on the adventure earlier this year? Well, I've done a few crazy things in my life. A couple of years ago, I did 40 marathons in 40 days for the Princess Trust 40th anniversary. And that was unbelievably difficult and painful. But nothing could prepare me for the South Pole. And I, I mean, it's minus 40, 45 degrees permanently. You've got 24-hour daylight. You're at 10,000 feet. So altitude sickness is there on day one. You don't see anything for 35 miles around you on a clear day. You've got blizzards as well. You're dragging a 100-kilo sledge with you over relatively rough terrain. And every time you go to the toilet, you have to do it in a bag and put it back in your sledge. And your sledge is getting heavier every day as a consequence. And it was quite simply the most brutal thing I've ever done. I mean, we had people collapse with hypothermia. We had one guy's tooth explode in his mouth because the frost had gone into a crack. We had frostbite. We had blisters. You know, it was so painful. You know, it took three weeks to complete. And on day one, we covered a mile, and I thought I was going to die. I thought my lungs were going to explode. But eventually, we started to sort of get more used to the altitude and everything else. But, you know, I think in terms of the resilience needed, it's just something that should flow through everybody's life, business, and everything else. And I mean, as mentioned, when I was 16, I got my apprenticeship. And back in the day, there was no email or anything like that. And I got a letter to tell me, and I was sitting on Bond Street tube station platform 
waiting to get the tube and there was an old man sitting next to me who I'm sure has passed on now as a long time ago but I opened up this letter and I don't think he could even read what was written on the letter but he could see me beaming with a smile and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said son always go the extra mile because there's less traffic there right and that stayed with me for a very very long time because the more you push the more you extend you see when people look at barriers in life and you know barriers in their journeys and they get frustrated because things are hard well the very fact that things are hard are the opportunities for you to put gaps between you and your competition because every hurdle is simply something for you to get over that then differentiates you from everyone chasing you and the more hurdles you can overcome the more barriers you put between you and your competition so you should look at these barriers these hurdles these challenges as the very things that articulate success for you versus your competition and i think this is the way that people should look at life generally Mike, that sounds like a really good place to end. So thank you very much for joining us. Really enjoyed speaking with you today, and I'm sure our listeners love listening to you. It'd be great to speak to you in person next time when we can. So enjoy the rest of the year. I'm sure we're all looking forward to 2021, given the debacle of 2020. But the good news is anyone looking forward to 2021 is still here. And we should be grateful for that as well. And good luck and stay safe to everyone listening and look forward to the other side of this challenging times and back to some sense of normality next year. Absolutely. Mike, many thanks indeed. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at juliusbear.com. Baer.com.